All righty. Well, welcome everybody to our first in-person gathering of 2023 here at Cedar Creek, and I am super excited that you are a part of it today. And I just have to tell you, I cannot think of a better way for us to start off the new year than with prayer. And when I say that, I'm not talking about kicking off the new year with a prayer. I'm not talking about just having a special time of prayer. I'm not even talking about a season of prayer. What I'm talking about is all of us taking a next step to develop a long-term lifestyle of prayer that goes way beyond just the next 12 months. I, I don't know if you've not been under a rock here recently, you know that prayer has been a, a hot topic in our culture, in the news, online. In fact, just this past week, we saw millions of Americans uniting in prayer for DeMar Hamlin, the young defensive back for the Buffalo Bills, who suffered a catastrophic cardiac arrest right there on the field. I mean, they had to do CPR. It, it was a horrible experience, but you saw grown men, NFL players, weeping on their knees in prayer, the stands full. And then all throughout the week, and Instagram, social media, everywhere. And then even, I don't know what night it was, but on ESPN's show, NFL Live, I saw something I thought I would never see in my lifetime. Well, one of ESPN's on-air personalities literally stopping in the middle of a television show, bowing his head and praying on live TV. It was unbelievable. It was so cool. I was like, man, is this really happening? This is so neat. But here's what I want you to understand. As cool as all that has been to see this kind of re-emphasis in our nation on prayer, that's great. But that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about moving us beyond just praying in the crisis big moments of life. I'm talking about all of us learning how to make prayer an integral and consistent part of every part of our lives. For prayer to be like breathing, that it's just something that we do, and in doing it, we find life. And so to help us do that, today we are kicking off a 21-day prayer journey together as a church. And so, so throughout the rest of the month of January, not only am I going to be teaching on prayer in our Sunday morning messages, but each week we're going to have a corporate time of prayer. As we gather together like this, we're going to take some time to pray we're going to study and talk about and pray in all of our home groups. And then on top of all that, we're going to be sending you a weekly set of prayer guides, personal prayer guides that you can use. We're going to share with you maybe some encouragement things to pray for you and for your family, things for you to pray for our church, things for you to pray for for our community. 
And so if you do not have the Cedar Creek Church app, there's never been another reason, a better reason for you to get that because we're going to be sending them out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Each morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when you wake up, there'll be a prayer guide there for you. And so don't leave here today without making sure you have the app because the first prayer guide comes out first thing tomorrow morning. I don't want you to miss any of this prayer journey. Now, also recognize the reality because we are such a large and diverse church and we are all kind of at different places in our spiritual journey. We're at a lot of different places when it comes to prayer. Some of us are probably what I would call the rarely or never group when it comes to prayer. We, we just don't pray. We're not sure we know how. We're not sure we even think it works or just seems kind of weird. Or, or maybe we pray like the nation prayed in a crisis, you know, this past week. But it's not really something that's a part of our lives. Some of us are what I might call occasional prayers. Right? We have specific times and things that we pray. Maybe we pray before meals, or you pray when you put your kids down to bed. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. Or maybe you pray when you come to a church service, or you pray when you're with your home group. But it's just kind of tied to certain moments and events in your life. Now, also know that some of you are, are what people call prayer warriors. You love to pray. You pray consistently. You pray often. I know some of us in here are comfortable praying out loud. For some of us, that might be our greatest fear. You know, that probably some of you, that's what keeps you from going to a home group because you're afraid they're going to make you pray out loud. And you're like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know the right words to say, you know. But listen, by the way, in our home groups, you'll never be put on the spot. You'll never be asked to read, say, pray, sing, do anything that you don't want to volunteer but my point is, we're all at different places along this spectrum when it comes to prayer. But, but here's the good news. We can all take a next step. We can all move one step closer to being a little more consistent and a little more effective when it comes to our prayer life. And I believe, and I believe this with all my heart, as we as a church begin our 30th year together. That's right, 2023 is the beginning of our 30th year in existence as a church. As we go into this fourth decade as a church, there is not a single more powerful, effective, or life-changing thing for us individually, but also for us collectively. There's not one better thing that we could do as a church than to move a little closer to being a people of prayer and a church of prayer. In fact, I'm convinced that our impact, the impact of us as individuals, the impact that we as a church can have on our community and even the whole world is directly proportional to the passion and consistency with which we make prayer a regular part of our lives. In fact, I know because I've been a part of 24 of the 30 years that this church has been in existence, and here's what I know to be true. Every move of God within this church family has always been built on a foundation 
of prayer. Here's why I believe prayer is so powerful. Here's what I believe is at the heart of the power of prayer. You may want to write this down. When it comes to prayer, prayer might change my circumstances, but it always changes me. Let me say that again. Prayer might change my circumstances, but it always changes me. What do I mean by that? I mean, there are times when we pray and God moves simp, simp, super, blah, 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 supernaturally. God moves and acts and changes the circumstances that we were praying about. Sometimes we pray and he heals disease. Sometimes we pray and he restores marriages that were beyond repair. Sometimes we pray and God shows up with financial resources just when we need them most. Sometimes prayer changes my circumstances, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes when I pray, God doesn't change the circumstances, but he does change me. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, great example of that. You may remember, Paul struggled with some sort of ailment, some kind of physical issue. He called it his thorn in the flesh. And so he prayed, he asked God to remove it. In fact, Paul said three times, I begged God to remove it, to change my circumstances. And God didn't change his circumstances. But he did change Paul. He used those circumstances to help Paul grow in his understanding and experience the sufficiency of God's grace when things don't go our way. That is the power of prayer. It always changes you, and sometimes as a bonus, it'll change your circumstances. And perhaps that's why the disciples, these followers of Jesus, after they'd spent about a year and a year and a half with Jesus, seeing Jesus do his thing, I think that may be why they made this request of him in Luke 11.1. 1. Look at what happens. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now look, as far as I know, and I've read all four of the Gospels multiple times. This is the only time I see in Scripture where the disciples specifically ask Jesus to teach them something. Right Now, Jesus taught them a lot of things, but this is the only thing they said, hey, Jesus, could you please teach us to pray? Think about that. Think about all the things they'd seen Jesus do, and yet prayer is what they wanted him to teach them. Right? They had seen the miracles. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him teach with incredible authority. And yet they didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to turn water into wine. They didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to heal the blind. They didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to study the scripture uh, with authority. No. They said, teach us to pray. They looked at Jesus' life. And it was his prayer life that they most wanted in their lives. Now remember, these were not a bunch of unchurched people who didn't know how to pray. They had grown up in the 
first century Jewish culture. Prayer was a part. They learned to pray from the time they were preschoolers. Prayer was deeply woven into their culture. They knew all the prayers. They prayed all the time. But there obviously was something different about the way Jesus prayed, something unique. Or maybe it was just the results that they saw Jesus get, and they wanted it. Either way, they wanted it for their lives. Jesus, teach us to pray. And do you know Jesus' answer to that request? You, you do know it. You may not know that you know that that's what it is. But all of you know Jesus' answer to that request. Many of you have that answer memorized. Because Jesus' answer to that request, teach us to pray, is something we call the Lord's Prayer. Or, or if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you would call it the Our Father and you know it well because you had to say it a lot because you were such a bad kid. You were always having to say some our fathers there. But, but here's the thing. We know we can say this prayer. We can pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you played sports, you know, back in the day, we used to huddle up and, and pray it all together. But the problem is this prayer was never meant to be a memorizable prayer for us to just vomit back without thinking about it. It was given by Jesus as a model, not only of how to pray, but it was also a reminder of exactly who it is we are praying to. So here's what I want to do. Over the next four weeks, I want us to walk line by line through the Lord's Prayer. I want us to take these words, these phrases, I want us to pull them apart, tear them apart, put them under the x-ray machine, and get all that we can get out of this incredible model of Jesus. This is Jesus saying, hey, here's how to pray. So does that make sense? You see where we're going? Awesome. All right, well, let's jump in. Today, we're going to start by just looking at the first two lines of this model prayer. Because in these first two lines, Jesus teaches us that prayer is about connecting with God and about surrendering to God. So let's jump in. Number one, write this down. Prayer begins with connecting to God. Prayer begins with connecting to God. What do I mean by that? I mean, prayer is not just seeking divine intervention with our God-sized problems and issues. Prayer is at its heart is about developing a deeper understanding of God and a closer connection to God. That's why Jesus starts out the prayer in Luke 11 too. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Two key words I want us to unpack today. The word Father and the word hallowed. It is hard for us today to understand how mind-blowing it was for the disciples for Jesus to tell them, start your prayer by saying, our Father. Because you see, for thousands of years, the name of God had been so sacred to the nation of Israel 
that they were not even comfortable ever saying it out loud. You remember the name that God gave Moses when Moses at the burning bush said, well, who do I tell him? What God do I tell him sent me? What is your name? And God's answer, I am that I am. That phrase is the Hebrew word Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-A-H. And that name was considered so sacred. They were so afraid of taking that name in vain that they would not even say it out loud. And if they had to write it down, they just wrote down the consonants and left out the vowels. They just wrote Y-H-W-H. That's how fearful, that's how much they reverence this name of God. And so Jesus said, yeah, guys, when you start out, just pray our Father. That'd be like me telling you, when you meet the new king of England, just call him Charlie. Hey, Charlie, how are you doing? Or, or better yet, just say, what's up, Chuck? Right? You'd be like, no, you can't talk to the king of England that way. That's how the disciples felt. And not only, look, when Jesus said, pray our father, he didn't use the formal word for father. He used the informal Aramaic word, Abba. It literally means Papa. Dada. It's what every little Jewish kid used. It's the word they learned for their dad. In fact, when, when Terry and I started having grandkids, I declared up front that I was going to control what the grandkids called me because I ain't no grandpa. Grandpa's old. So I declared that my grandchildren will call me Poppy. In fact, what I said was, I want you to call me Big Poppy, because that's a cool name, like David Ortiz, right? Right? That's awesome. So I'm not getting the big yet, but I am getting the poppy. And I wanted that name not only because it's a really cool name, but I wanted them to be able to say it as soon as they could. It might be 13 before they can say granddad, but I knew early on they could say Poppy, because I wanted them to know they could connect with me. I'm not some distant, angry old man. I'm Big Poppy, and I, love, I want you to. I want to hold you. I want to be close to you, and that's what Jesus wanted the disciples, and by default wanted us to know. Look, when you're praying, you're not talking to some impersonal cosmic force. When you're not, when you're praying, you're not begging for scraps from some angry tyrant who's hard to please. You are connecting with your heavenly father, your Abba, your Papa. Now look, I, I know for some of you, the image of a father is neither warm, fuzzy, nor endearing. When you think of father, you think of an angry person or you think of somebody who's inconsistent, like, I never know, good mood, bad mood, is he going to blow? Or maybe for you, when you think of father, you think of absent, not there, abandoned. Or even if he is there, he's not really there. Or, or maybe when you think of father, you think of somebody who's just unpleasable. No matter what you do or how hard you try, you're never going to be good Enough, And here's the reality, whether we want to admit this or not, we all tend to project 
our feelings towards our dad on to God. That we tend to see our father through the lens of our earthly father. And, and if that's you, if, if this idea of a father is painful for you, if it triggers or knocks off some scabs, first of all, I want you to know, I am so, so sorry for your pain. I'm sorry that you didn't have the gift or the blessing of a good image of a father. But I want you to know your heavenly father is everything your earthly father was not. But I also want to say this, in all love and sincerity, some of you, the issues you have with God right now are less about God and more about issues you've got with your dad. A New York University professor decades ago did a study of a group of 60 or 70 of the most famous atheists in out, throughout all of history. You know, like Karl Marx and Russell Bertrand and uh, Sigmund Freud, some of these great famous atheists who have lived throughout history. And he did a study of them. That study would eventually become a book. And the title of that book is The Faith of the Fatherless. Because see, what he discovered the one thing all of those famous atheists had in common, the one common denominator is they all had broken, messed up relationships with their dads. They hated their dads or they grew up without a dad. And that caused them to be angry towards and hold God at arm's length. And I don't want you to miss that because your dad didn't provide a good image. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to take just a minute. I want to share with you the type of father your heavenly father is. I, I want you to know what your Abba father is like. Three things. Write these down. First of all, he is a caring father. God is a caring father. He actually does care about you. He's not self-obsessed. He's not oblivious to what you're going through. He sees, he knows, and he has compassion for what you're going through. I think that's why Peter, one of the disciples that Jesus taught to pray, years later as an old man would write these words in 1 Peter 5, 7. He would say, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Key word there, all. All your anxieties, all your cares, all your fears, all of them. Sometimes people will ask me, Philip, is it wrong for me to pray for like little things? Because I mean, I know God's got the whole Ukraine war and got this famous football player that he's got to heal. Does God, is it okay for me to pray that my dog is sick? Is it okay for me to pray about my face breaking out? Is it okay for me to tell God that I'm really bothered by having a bad hair day? If you've ever wondered that, I want you to hear me say this clearly. There is nothing too small for you to take to your Abba, Father. If you care about it, He cares about it. 
because he cares about you. God is a caring father. Secondly, he's a consistent father. And I'm so glad for that because most of us, I know as a dad, inconsistency was kind of a hallmark. But he is a consistent father. That's great news in the midst of uncertainty, in this new reality we live in where things like everything changes every day. Our Abba Father never changes. You can always count on him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, look at what Jesus' brother James writes in James 1.17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, your heavenly Father, your our Father, and then notice what it says, who does not change like shifting shadows. In the shifting shadows of the lives we live, we have a God, a Father, who does not change. He is caring. He is consistent. And thirdly, he is a competent father. God is a competent father. What does that mean? That means there's nothing that he can't do. It was amazing when my kids were real little, all the things they thought their father could fix. Like they'd break a toy and they'd say, Daddy, fix it. Like some of you know, I'm completely incompetent. I don't even know how to use a screwdriver, much less actually fix it. Daddy, fix it. Hamster would be sick. Daddy, fix my hamster. Hamster dead. Daddy, fix my hamster. I'm like, no, I don't know how. Of course, now that they're older, they'll tell you, if you got a problem, don't take it to daddy to fix it. He don't know what he's doing with those things. But we have a father who can fix anything. Jesus put it this way, Luke 1, 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And see, when you understand the type of father that you can connect intimately with, the kind of father that you have as your Abba, your Papa, then all of a sudden the next words of this prayer make a whole lot more sense. Hallowed be your name. That word hallowed, no, it doesn't have anything to do with Halloween. It literally means reverenced or holy. Hallowed means different than everything else. Yes, you are praying to your Abba Father, but never forget he is still the God of the universe. When you pray, you're not talking to somebody you're not reaching out to the big guy in the sky. You're not praying to the big man upstairs. You are praying to the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. I think when we pray, two of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to prayer, one is to assume that God is too big to care about me and the little things in my life. But the other mistake we make, I think, often is to think that God is too small to deal with the big issues in our life. And with the opening line of this prayer, Jesus dispels both of those myths. See, when you understand the God of the universe is your poppy, your Abba, it helps you understand this second truth Jesus teaches us about prayer. 
And that is that prayer is surrendering to God. Prayer is surrendering to God. And if we could be honest with ourselves for a minute, we would all have to admit that often in our prayers, we are trying to convince God to surrender to our will. Fix it this way. Move this way. Deal with this this way. But Jesus makes it clear that prayer is an act of us surrendering God to God's will for our lives, not us trying to get God to bend to our will. That's why the second line of the prayer, Luke 2b, Luke 11, 2b, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you all know this line. You've prayed those words countless times, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But have you ever actually stopped and thought about what it is you're saying? What you are praying? What does that mean, your kingdom come? Well, one of the things I love about this part of the prayer is that it defines itself. That the first two sentences of this part of the prayer say the same thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the same thing because God's kingdom is anywhere and everywhere that God's will is being done. God's kingdom is not set off someplace in heaven where everything's perfect. God's kingdom exists anywhere and everywhere that God's will is being done. God's kingdom exists in your marriage when you lay down your own desires to meet the needs of your spouse. God's kingdom, God's will is being done every time you reach out to share the hope of Jesus with somebody who doesn't have it. God's kingdom exists everywhere you connect authentically with another believer and do life together. God's kingdom exists every time you take a growth, a faith step to become more like Jesus. God's kingdom exists everywhere and every time you serve with a humble heart and pure motives. God's kingdom exists every time you lift up his name in prayer. Every time you praise his name in worship. God's kingdom exists everywhere you make him famous. That's what you're saying. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, the purpose of our lives is not to build our own kingdom. The purpose of our life is not to build the kingdom of our toys, the kingdom of our career, the kingdom of even Cedar Creek Church. The purpose of our lives is to build the kingdom of God, to be a part of growing his kingdom and finally be done with the trinkets and the emptiness of living for my kingdom or the kingdom of this world. That comes from surrender. So how do I do that? How do I surrender to God's will for my life? I'm glad you asked. Two things, two keys to surrendering to God's will in his kingdom. One, I got to let go of control. I have to let go of control. Mm. 
right? We write that down. I have to stop thinking that I have to control my children, my grandchildren, my office. I have to control the way the church functions. I have to control my spouse. I have to control everything. Every day I wake up and I have to decide whose kingdom today? Whose will? Me? My will? Or God's will? You have to make that decision every day as well. Because we all have stuff we know God wants us to do. We just don't want to do it. It's a battle of wills. We all have verses of Scripture we know we need to obey. But we don't want to because it's hard and it makes us uncomfortable. But can I just tell you, God's will is always better God's will is usually harder at the beginning, but it's always better in the end. Listen, here's the greatest theological lesson I could ever teach you. This is the greatest truth I could ever share with you. It's simply this. There is a God, and I'm not him. Say that with me out loud. There is a God, and I'm not him. One more time. There is a God, and I'm not him. There's freedom in that. I, I love this verse from Psalm 4610. Love this. Look at what it says. Let go of your concerns. Then you will know that I am God. I rule the nations. I rule the earth. Look, most of you know that verse from a different translation. You know the verse as, be still and know that I am God. That phrase, that Hebrew phrase, be still, literally means to let go, to stop trying to be in control. Stop trying to control things you were never meant to control. How many of you know the serenity prayer? You know that famous serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Great prayer. But you do understand that's not the whole prayer. That prayer goes on. Let me read the rest of the prayer. Don't miss this. Listen. It says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you, God, will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life. You're never going to be completely happy in this life. So I can be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. One of the greatest gifts you can give yourself, one of the greatest gifts you can give your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, is to stop trying to control what you were never meant to control. And the number two, the second thing I have to do uh, to submit and surrender to God's will, this might be even harder. I got to learn to be content. 
I got to learn to be content. Now, most of us misunderstand content. We think content means just throwing in the towel, giving up, wallowing, swallowing. It is what it is. Nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to lay around and eat some worms. Nobody likes me. No, no. In fact, we just saw in the serenity prayer that we need to have the courage to change the things we can change. We all got stuff in our life we need to change, and we have the power and the ability to change it. So I'm not talking about just giving up. Contentment, what I'm talking about is being okay with the things that are not okay, and I don't have the power to do anything about it. Right? That's what contentment is. But listen, we need contentment not just with the things we cannot change in our lives. We need to learn how to be content with the things we don't understand. We have to learn how to be content with the questions we may never get answers to. Because I can tell you, I spent a lot of long days and dark nights trying to find answers to the why, God. Why not this? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you intervene here? And I can tell you those are dark cul-de-sacs that you just go round and round in. And at some point, I just have to say, there is a God, and I'm not him, and I'm going to be content with that. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now understand when Paul wrote that, he was not laying on the beach in the French Riviera enjoying a, you know, some kind of beverage. He was literally chained to a a Roman soldier 24-7 in a dark, dark, nasty, filthy prison. And he said, I've learned to be content. Notice he said, I learned it. Contentment is not natural. What is natural for us is a constant state of discontentment. You know why? Because our favorite pastime is comparison. And comparison is the mother of all our discontent. Every time you're discontent, it's because you're thinking about or looking at somebody that you think has a better life or a better set of circumstances than you. You know why? Because we always compare up. Nobody compares down. If you compared down, you'd be a little more content with what you have. In fact, if you're struggling with discontentment in your life, here's a cure. Sign up and go on one of our global outreach trips. Go to someplace like Guatemala or inner city Toronto and see what other people live every day with. I promise you, you'll come back home and be a little more grateful for what you do have instead of whining and complaining about what you don't. Let go of control. Learn to be content. Now, as I said at the very beginning of this message, the power of prayer is not in changing my circumstances. The power of prayer is in changing me, to change my view of who God really is, and then to take a next step into surrendering to him as God. So I'm going to give us all a chance to do that. We're going, as a church family, we are going to recite the Lord's Prayer together, collectively, out loud. But we're not just going to say it from rote memory. We're not just going to vomit out the words. 
we're actually going to pray these first two lines that we just studied, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to soak in this truth. We're going to soak in what it means to be able to connect with a true Abba Father. We're going to soak in and think about our own lives and what it is we need to surrender. Where do we need to give up control? And then after we've had a time to reflect on what we've learned so far, then we're going to pray the rest of the prayer together, straight through. Make sense? All right, so let's say these first two lines together that we've been talking about today out loud. Here you go. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now just close your eyes. Bow your head. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what time it is. It's okay. I want you to just focus on who it is you're connecting with who you're talking to. And then I want you to think about what it means to surrender for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in your life. I look up here. Let's pray the rest of this prayer together. You ready? Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.